Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we talked about the Habsburg reaction to the more active France, as Spain tried to create stronger ties in the war with the Habsburgs with limited success. The Imperials did have some success against the French, but it ultimately was minor, as it was skirmishing at the start of a bigger thing in relative scale. I also covered the fact that France was not as ready as they wanted to seem, their army not nearly as well disciplined as they liked, as well as needing veterans of the Swedes to stay in the war, getting Bernhard to join the French after the technical failure of the Rhine campaign. But with that covered, let's get started. This episode we start with more war, as the Spanish public, especially in the Netherlands, actually preferred fighting the Dutch over the French. Fernando had around 70,000 troops, but the Dutch struck back fast, retaking Sinkenchans and many other lost territory they lost in the previous year. The advance stopped. The advance stopped when the Dutch ran out of money, but it did effectively put a wrench in the Spanish plans, keeping them from aiding the Imperials. France had launched an offensive in Franche Comte and lightly attacking Italy, which was a Spanish holding at the time. They were focused on Franche Comte, breaking a neutrality agreement, but it was viewed as important due to Duke Charles fleeing there upon its defeat, his elimination more important. Like we said, in this war, many people would break neutrality agreements if it seemed it would benefit the ultimate war. But Charles and the Spanish were too weak to resist, and Ferdinand could only provide indirect assistance, forcing Olivares to withhold most of the 100,000 monthly payment of Talers till they acted in favor of Spain. They meaning the Imperials. It's certainly ruthless tactics, but if your allies not giving you what you want, you're going to withhold support until they do. So, I understand. Gallus, second in command of the Imperial forces, couldn't aid them as he was rebuilding his army at Drusenhelm, or Drusenheim, in Alsace, and trying and failing to negotiate with, with Strasbourg to use its bridge over the Rhine. This was good for the French, as this was, for, this was good for France and Bernhard, as it allowed them to link up in Alsace and form a more cohesive army. So Spain was then forced to launch diversionary attacks to get the Imperials going, as they were kind of sitting on their ass, building up. Prince Tommaso invading Picardy with 25,000 men. Piccolomini finally moved west from the Rhine to join troops at Liege, his combined force to run 12,000 attacking Champagne. They rushed in, beating the 9,000 men there fairly easily. They plundered the rich farmland and besieged Corby on the Somme by August 7th, cavalry raiding as far as Compania. Compania. Oh boy, a new realm of names. Great. Corby fell by August 15th, and the Spanish struck the Pyrenees, capturing St. John de Luz. France was not ready for their lands to be attacked, and this certainly would be a wake-up call for many people, as it showed their homeland down to attack. The French court was in chaos, as refugees flooded in from the rural areas, which was common as many people would flee their villages, hearing rumors of an army, or just the potential advance on any army before they could even reach there, taking all their valuables, all their farm animals, etc., or killing them if they couldn't do that. Gaston, the brother of the king, was roused, arriving with around 5,000 hastily gathered reinforcements, and Frederick Henry attacked the southern Netherlands with 13,000 men. Conde, a skilled and very important French general in the future, withdrew from the siege of Dole, moving to support the French king, as he was, he meaning the French king, was trying to organize a defense of the country. But before the French could really hit the enemy, the Spanish pulled back, not really having the resources to hold the gains in France that they had. This was not expected, and even when Piccolomini pressured them, they refused, pulling back to the positions in Picardy and Champagne. The French also advanced under the command of the king, so a tactical retreat was a good idea, as the French could muster a lot of troops, and even if they were a little ill-disciplined, they were still not the worst fighting force. The French retook Corby by November 14th, and the situation stabilized as the winter set in. So, the French had 
their territory attacked for the first time in the Thirty Years' War, excluding the whole Alsace issue, but that was sort of not technically theirs, but they were claiming it. That was more complex. And places like Champagne and Picardy were definitely French territory, so that was much more of a blow, at least psychologically. The French did react fast enough to keep this from getting worse as the enemy withdrew in good order, but the enemy withdrew back to more safe positions. And this is going to swing back and forth as this war goes on, as France is going to kind of pick up veterancy as time goes on, as in there will be a shift around 1640 or so, which when we get to it, we will cover, or I will cover. But with the French distracted, Gallus was able to move his men to reinforce to Charles, totaling around 40,000 men. However, the chance to use those numbers failed when rain and plague ravaged the army, Imperials retreating to the upper Saone by the end of 1635. And Charles started a series of raids and counter-raids in the rain between garrisons called Guerre de Chateau, which was done by both sides. It was a lot of attacking territory, getting money, but not necessarily holding it. The main effect of this small mini-campaign into France showed France that this war would be a long, drawn-out affair, and it wasn't going to be easy, even if they had a lot of political power. But it was one thing to learn that as a general. It's another thing for, like, the French court to learn this, because they had been looking at it from the outside. Now they had experienced it from their country, so some of them probably had a wake-up call, although it's nobility, some probably still didn't get that. But the Hadburg alliance still remained tenuous and ineffective, both sides with different goals, leaving a weak spot in the United War. It's still going to be allies, but they definitely did not have coordination that they really needed. And France was now threatened due to the raid and the threats on the rain, which made them more determined because attacking internet territory is easy, but once you attack someone's territory, it's a lot harder to get them to stop fighting. So this war would start establishing its rhythm pretty quickly, but we will move on to Peace of Prague in the wake of the defeat of Sweden and Northern as this is an important political step in this war. So for reference, the Peace of Prague was being done when the war was being waged in Sweden and the French. Things were happening in the background, life goes on, the whole thing. The peace process, however, was turning and turning as Ferdinand was focused on it over his military affairs, leaving that to his other other generals and his son. Uh, and now that he was able to negotiate from a position of power, he didn't need to make concessions like he would have had to before. He had three objectives. Unite the imperial states behind him, achieve military superiority, and drive foreigners from the empire. The last point may be strange to some people, but as the HRE was a patchwork of different states, but this was very much a vaguely Germanic association. They are the German people. Austrians at this point are still a Germanic people and still are German people and, and still are a German people. They're all, they come from German stock. So if they can unify under them, it would kick out a lot of the foreign interferers like Sweden, France, Poland, all the other people that were causing chaos. He had a large support base now, and he was willing to compromise a little bit on the edict of restitution for those who cooperated, and, and he would isolate those who wouldn't or he felt didn't deserve it. I mean, it's a lot and kind of arbitrary, but he is the emperor, and he did win a major battle. Well, the imperials won a major battle. He was trying to gather strength across the Swedes up north and was willing to offer peace on his terms to end the war with Sweden, but those would be humiliating for Sweden, so they weren't going to sign it. Sweden, again, was still not out yet, even if they were still wounded. And if theoretically his terms with Sweden could be served, that would achieve peace, even more than achieving peace in the Empire, and France was still on the path to getting into the war, so if he could achieve peace before that, he would be in a much better position and would further his goals. The peace was often considered a way to secularize this conflict, especially with France as an opposing Catholic force. Keep in mind, remember, I told you one of the pretenses of this war 
throughout this whole podcast was it was war of religion, Protestants versus Catholics. Even if we know, or I hope you guys understand, it's a bit more than that. There's way more motivation underlying this whole conflict. And many German Protestants accepted the terms, like Brandenburg and Saxony, along with the majority of Lutherans, as they would be under the protection of this new accord, as you will understand later. The militants were losing their influence in the empire as more pragmatic men began to take the reins as peace started to come into being. And less militants means more people are willing to compromise and negotiate. It should be said that the majority of leaders accepted the peace, however, there was a minority of people who still emphasized the issue of religion, especially of those more minor Protestant sects who were not accepted. These new terms, which I'll cover in a bit, they shifted the nature of the war. Ferdinand's goal was not to become an absolute monarch, but to establish a constitutional order that favored, well, his order. The HRE was too much of a chaotic, decentralized mess to ever centralize, at least in a short term. It would take a lot of long-term wrangling, and even then, it wasn't like France where there's a little more solid unity. This was much more of a mess to deal with, as I hope my introduction to the HRE kind of got across. This would also assert that a Reichstag was impossible due to French influence, stating only the monarch could negotiate, the Reichstag being the gathering of the important German nobility to decide decisions, which this asserted Ferdinand would negotiate for the empire, but the French and Swedes considered this an overstep of his power, worrying France because they were surrounded by him on, well, not by him, but by the Habsburgs on both sides. So both of them wanted to be able to negotiate with all the various estates independently without the emperor being able to interfere. Externally, everyone's playing their political favor, so it wasn't like, I'm not saying one's right and the other. Both sides made sense of what they're trying to do. A side effect of this was it would push Sweden and France closer, both wanting to stop the growth of the Habsburg influence, which would most likely try to extend into their realms or their spheres of influence. And that would not necessarily be in their favor as France and Sweden getting closer means two enemies on two fronts. Ferdinand also chose to leave out select princes from the deal, allowing Sweden and France to claim they were fighting for German liberty, even though they both wanted a weak emperor and to be free to spread their influence in the empire, just hiding their true intentions under the fake face of benevolence and trying to help the Germans. Each side obviously kept this all hidden, but each monarchy was working for their own goals. It just happened to coincide that Sweden and France had a roughly similar goal, even if they probably would come to blows at other times, but they weren't neighbors, so they didn't necessarily have the same geographical issues the others did. Ferdinand's health was also failing, which pushed up the timeline to prepare his son to rule, along with to prepare for the election of the next emperor, who the plan was his son, which wasn't uncommon once a dynasty kind of took control of the HRE. A bribe here, a bribe there, some land here, some land there, that sort of thing. If you didn't want to fall in line just by loyalty. The Hadlers were in a much better position to talk one with Saxony with interference from Wallenstein or the Swedes so they could negotiate much more freely with them. As Saxony was a major power in the HRE, at least influentially, or at least for influence. Ferdinand also knew he had to win the support of his Catholic followers, seeing as the church already complained about his concessions on church lands, which was not all of them were going to be given back, and that was going to be a whole nother issue. They were complaining, but they were at least kept centered around Cologne, so they could all be kept up to date on what was going on, even if they didn't like it. He also had to balance this with his Protestant followers, who were willing to compromise, like Mainz, and Ferdinand had plans to dissolve the Catholic League to soothe their fears, as well as use that to get more control over the military aspect of the war, so he didn't have to worry about two separate forces, one under his command. The League had taken a hit since... The League had taken a hit in reputation after the loss at Breitenfeld, and Bavaria had shown themselves to not satisfy many other princes militarily. Unifying the military command would make it easier, and I would probably do the same if I was in his position, 
although to do it successfully would take some political finagling. Bavarian approval had to be gained, and Maximilian was given special concessions on November 19th, 1634 at Stuttgart, with the promise the Bavarian forces would be a special unit in the military. He was also married to the emperor's oldest daughter, Maria Anna, to secure the deal, as marriage alliances were still, you know, important at this time. And this not only gave a child to the child's leader eventually, it basically pushed aside any resistance from Cologne due to the influence of Bavaria being able to make up for that loss of, or that lack of support from the church in some level. The last step Ferdinand needed to do was silence the holdouts in Vienna, who were still militant, as well as to soothe his own conscience, which was resolved when a group of Jesuits argued the concessions were okay based on the doctrine of lesser evil, which was the idea of it's okay to do a lesser sin if it stops you from doing a greater sin, or saves you from like a greater issue slash sin. Remember, he was a very religious man, even if he was willing to compromise. And to be clear, he was worrying he was giving too much to the Protestants, not over the war. He wanted to reduce the Protestants' power and influence, but lately stopped him going too far. I bet if he could, he would try to assert the initial terms that caused this war to start, assuming he could get away with that. But that would be too far for anyone, and people were too caught up in fighting, and no one would accept that. And long-term was the important part here. But with the preamble to the terms built up, we will move on to the terms of the Peace of Prague. So the Catholic League was officially dissolved, along with their alliances, although the electors were allowed to meet on their own initiative. The key idea asserted was the importance of the Constitution, which asked the inhabitants to behave truthfully like Germans. Those who opposed the emperor were granted amnesty, though the elector of the Palatine was still excluded, and Bavaria was still confirmed to control those lands once again, meaning Maximilian. They just had to make sure that was in paper. That was all written down in black ink. There were pieces like Württemberg who were also excluded, although they were allowed to make separate pieces, which could potentially give them the same terms, although that was still up in the air. The peace did go along with the terms of the Easter Constitution, referring to the Protestants as adherents of the Augsburg Confession, although he did not use the 1530 effect, including Calvinists into this new piece as the original 1930 text did not include Calvinists. However, those who were excluded from this edict, those who were excluded or not allowed to negotiate in this peace, faced the full edict and others received a 40-year suspension for church lands they had appropriated between 1552 and 1627. The logic for the end date of that was the official approval of the legal basis of the restitution, which stressed the legitimacy of its policy constitutionally, not religiously. So this definitely put an angle on this wasn't religious, this was me asserting civil authority. This also stressed that an amicable solution was preferable to any sort of conflict even for those under the full restitution, as they could negotiate and appeal to get better negotiating terms, or more fair terms, potentially. Ferdinand had clearly seen that pushing hard would create more issues, so lightening up would create more internal consistency and stability. If negotiations between the emperor and the city-state or principality or whatever it was failed, the full edict could only be enforced after a delegation of princes equally Catholic and Protestant agreed to it. You had to get a generally majority vote or at least uniform agreement by a select group of princes of both religions to get the full edict put on you, which would probably mean a lot to actually get that, considering how much they would debate and not get along. The normative year was also agreed to be 1627 for land and such, if that delegation failed under Article 11 for enforcing the ban. So it was like you're going back to before the war. It was during the war after they had effectively been beating the Danish. So the edict and all this was effectively weakened, and Ferdinand had reluctantly agreed to allow Magdeburg to be ruled by Johann George's son for life, and the Saxony was given to Saxony. Halderstadt was also given to Archduke Leopold Wilhelm, but rules were put in place to keep the Protestants safe, because everyone seeing more religious conflict was just not worth it. 
Bernay was giving so much ground because his lands had excluded Protestantism from them. So as long as his lands were secure, the others could do what they wanted, as well as this allowing a more successful peace to happen as once the Habsburg hereditary lands were secure, he didn't care. And another part of the peace was having all military forces, sans the ones previously mentioned, declare that they would support the emperor be the Catholic or Protestant. The combined army would swear loyalty to the formula of, quote, emperor and, emperor and empire, unquote. All imperial states were also to pay 100,000 Roman months in six installments from September 1st, 1635. A Roman month was not a time period, it was a unit of imperial taxation, which was worth around the wages of 4,000 cavalry and 20,000 infantry, so it was a fairly costly amount. And that's 100 Romans for six months, that's a lot of money, which, to be fair, would be needed for the war, but that's a lot to ask for a drained economy. The last part of the military aspect of this agreement was logistics and billets were to adhere to imperial ordinances with the intent of reducing the brutality of the war. Although, as the author of the book generally states, this was unrealistic to expect this would work as there was no communications to the same extent that we have nowadays. You can't just tell someone. You have to send a messenger or a carrier pigeon or something. So people are still going to be bad. People are still going to do really bad things in friendly territory. It's a nice idea, but in practice, not realistic. The terms were negotiated between Saxony and Imperial representatives, the others watching from the sidelines, although they did have input, at least with Saxony, as he was representing the good chunk of the German princes. Saxony had been leading negotiations throughout the Swedish phase, even if they were secret and failed, but they showed that they were looking for peace at this time. Saxony was also a fairly powerful state, so it was natural they would represent the smaller states in this agreement, especially as they were the lead power in the Swedish alliance, at least among the Germans. Ferdinand handed out copies of the deal, excluding the exceptions he made to encourage more people to join and support this peace. So the peace was on the way to success, although it wasn't done yet. And if it succeeded, it would turn the war from an internal and external to mostly external war, the French and the Swedes the main enemies that they could focus on. And the new unified army could in theory operate better, although time would tell if this would help or not. It is sad to see the Catholic League formally go, or not, depending on your opinion of this, but a major faction was gone, and for a very politically expedient reason, which I get. Although Bavaria at least had the concession to temper them. This peace could be potentially a good solution to long-term problems in the Empire, especially if he could unify the major powers under him and have them fall in line. And this would mean his war against France and Sweden could go much more smoothly and not have to worry about internal rebellion. But that is it for now, as next week I finish up the Peace of Prague, as this is a beast of a topic. I want to thank you all for listening, for keeping me coming back to work on this. Social media links will be in the description, or the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder that of Patreon. Thanks for those who support me, interview and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time.